Well, we are in the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. This book, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Jewish canon, are one book. And the author of this seems to be a single author. But it could be that Ezra wrote down and copied what Nehemiah said uh, and wrote down. But though they're two different books, the stories are very similar and they overlap where Ezra and Nehemiah come together at a certain point. And we've been seeing that as we've been going along. The book is written in such a way that it focuses on one key leader who goes up to help the nation of Israel and he's sent by a king to help the nation of Israel. And then afterwards he faces some hardship and then God helps him to overcome and reach out to the people and then he basically brings about some form of change over there. So Ezra 1 to 6, we saw Zerubbabel who led a large group of people back to rebuild the temple. And then about 60 years later, we saw Ezra arrives in Jerusalem in Ezra 7 to 10 to teach the Torah, to help them understand the word of the Lord, to basically rebuild the community. Then he's followed by Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 to 7, where he came to rebuild the wall. And like I said, all three of them were sent by Persian kings in order for God to help something happen there. And Nehemiah chapter 8 to 12, which we finished last week, is where they work together to bring about spiritual renewal in Jerusalem. And today we are in Nehemiah chapter 13, which again ends with an anticlimactic ending, where the book fails, shows how the people fail to keep the covenant that they made with God, the covenant that is recently renewed with God. <coughs> Last week, we saw that the people remembered all their leaderships from before and rejoiced and praised God for his goodness towards them. And finally, the temple was now ready where they could come into the temple and worship God and trace back what good God has done to them. Remember, the temple was built before, the walls were built, but there was no worship in the temple. And last week, after chapter 10, where they renewed their oath with God, they renewed their covenant back with God, they've come back into the temple as they rejoice and worship God for His goodness in their lives. That's where we ended in chapter 12. This morning, we're in chapter 13, and we look at verses 1 to verses 14. The main point of today's passage is taken from the text itself. Forsake not the house of God. That is Nehemiah's question to the people of Israel, or rather exhortation to the people of Israel. Forsake not the house of God. The first point that we can see from verses 1 to 3 is to obey the word of God. They are called to obey the word of the Lord. Nehemiah has finished spending 12 years. Remember, he came for a time being. The king sent him for a time and asked him to return back. If you remember back in the start of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the king's palace. His heart was broken for the people of Israel because the walls were broken and ruined. And therefore, he asked, could you please let me go back so I can build all of this back? 
And out of God's goodness, God allowed him through this pagan ruler to go back and to rebuild the city and the walls. And now he has to go back because it's been 12 years long. And so therefore he is returning back in, to Jerusalem, uh, returning back to uh, Babylon. He's held the temple, he's built the walls, and then he's going back. So between chapter 12, what we saw last week, and chapter 13, there is at least minimum a gap of one year. We need to remember that as we read. Oftentimes when we read chapter breaks, we forget that there might be time differences between them, or there might be a gap between when they were written. Now after chapter 12, remember what we had just said in the background chapter 12, they were happy, they had gratitude towards God, they are back into the temple, they are worshipping God. After chapter 12, we are in chapter 13, and now after 12 years, all of the people, after one, just within a year of coming back into the temple, thanking God for everything, they have already forgotten everything. And they have drifted back to their sinful practices. But however, while they hear from the reading of the word from the Moses, from the law of Moses, and what are they hearing? That no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? The reason is given in verse 2. That was verse 1. Verse 2, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 2 says, For, basically, which is giving you the reason, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet God turned that curse into a blessing. Now you might be wondering, who are Ammonites and who are Moabites? Why are they not allowed to let uh, come into the presence of God? And what is this talking about here in the text? For that we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Ammonites and Moabites uh, were basically people who were related to the nation of Israel. When Israel just came out of Egypt and uh, were and going on the way to the promised land, they asked help from these two people. And therefore, when they reached out to them help, all that they got back was what? Curses. We see this in short in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 to 6, which I have not put up there and we will not read because that will take a lot of time. But with the author of Nehemiah refers back to them, basically trying to show that they sought help from these foreign kingdoms. But again, you might be wondering why are they seeking help from these foreign kingdoms? And the reason is because they're related to the nation of Israel. That's why they sought help from them. That's why, again, genealogies are important. Genealogy shows you this. So we look at quickly at Genesis chapter 19, verse 36 to 38. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called him the name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Lot's Abraham nephew had two daughters, and those two daughters were two sons, who were the fathers of the nation of Moab and Ammonite. Now you might also, if you're reading in the Old Testament, which we stopped now, and we've just finished Matthew, uh, I think after this next week we'll go back to the Old Testament. Another name that will often come up when you come to 
uh, the Old Testament, who is against the people of Israel, is the nation of Edom. So the Edomites, who are basically the descendants of who? Esau, who is the brother of Jacob. So you see that all of them are basically were neighbors. They all just lived north of the nation of Israel. And they were basically related to them in, in the far away generations, but they still related to them. And every time they went, they got back not loved, but hated. But this was not the only reason why God says that you are to separate from them. And you know why, can you look into the text in verse 3. The Israelites read this text, and what did they do? They separated from them all those of foreign descent, not just Ammonites and Moabites. They separated all foreigners from their descent, from foreign descent, from themselves. Why did they separate all of foreigners from their descent? Because this separation is something that God has asked for them before. Even if we go back to chapter 10, when they renew the covenant, they separate from the, from the foreigners. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28 to 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, joined with their brothers and nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and was given by Moses, a servant of God, to observe all and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, Lord and his rules and his statutes. Basically, before renewing the new covenant uh, or the oath with them, what they first did was they separated from the people of the land. And this is not new in these two books, and it's not new to us as we've been going through these books. Remember Ezra chapter 4, all the way in the start, when they came to rebuild the temple. The neighbor said, we want to build with you. And they said, no, you will not join us. We will do this alone. This is for us alone. What is the reason for the separation? It is not ethical, uh, it is not... Uh, separation based on tribe, or it is not separation based on caste, or it is not separation based on the color of skin, or by the people groups, but the main separation that God wanted for them here is the separation of religion, or belief, or what they believed in. For the pagans believed in foreign gods, who God did not want the nation of Israel to fall into. If you look into the Old Testament, you will see again and again the reason Israel sins is because their sons and their daughters marry pagans. And here we can see one text, one of the previous texts, that you can see this clearly in Judges chapter 3, verses 6. And their daughters they took to themselves as wives, and their own daughters they gave them as sons. And then here's the result of it. And they served their gods. And for this reason, they were forbidden. And that's why the nation of Israel broke up and separated from all the pagans. Now this is an old covenant thing, right? You might be wondering, this is when the new covenant. 
this does not apply to us. Well, Christ and the, the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit has brought these commands of the Old Covenant even into the New Covenant in the right manner. And so you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 and chapter 7 verse 1 and this is what the Bible tells us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see that Paul goes on with question after question after question to try to draw different connections to say that you are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now oftentimes when people quote this, they are only talking about marriage. But this is not only talking about marriage, this is rather talking about something more fuller. Marriage is just one thing that fits into it. And Paul says the reason for all of this is that for you are the temple of the living God. You see in the old covenant the temple was cleansed of them. In the new covenant you are that temple. And therefore keep yourself clean of that. And then Paul quotes back to the Old Testament. He says, I, for God said, I will make a dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their own midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. And look at what says, chapter 7 verse 1. Since we have this promise, what Paul is telling to the church in Corinth, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to complete in the fear of God. At the very basic, what this means is to not unite with unbelievers in marriage. That means a Christian should not get married to an unbeliever. What does an unbeliever mean? An unbeliever means is someone who is not a true Christian, who does not profess the gospel, does not live out the gospel, does not follow the gospel, and has no dedication to Christ. Uh, unbeliever, a believer is not only someone who keeps coming to church. Well, pastor, he's been going to church for the past 10 years. That does not make him a believer or her a believer. It's someone whose life is dedicated for Christ alone, who lives for him, who lives for the gospel, who can know what the gospel is and lives out what the gospel tells them to do. Now with that said, I'm not saying if you're married to unbelievers, go and leave your husbands or your wives. That's not what I'm saying, because the Bible speaks about that as well. Elsewhere, when I spoke about Ephesians, I've spoken about that, and so that is not what I'm saying. So good self to ask, is then what then is being unequally yoked with an unbeliever? What is that? <coughs> a good question to ask ourselves, or a good way to look at it, is this. Being unequally yoked with an unbeliever is in such a way that this unbeliever significantly influences the direction and the outcomes and moral decisions of your life. 
I'll repeat that again because that was a mouthful. Being unequally yoked with an unbeliever is this in such a way that they significantly influence the direction, the outcome of our moral decisions and spiritual activities. Anything you want to do for God when they hinder in it, when they make you keep changing it always, that is being unequally yoked. When they change your worldviews, when they change what you think. Now I can get into this for another 15-20 minutes and I've written all of it down, but I'm going to reserve that for, otherwise I'll go on for 1 hour 15 minutes. So I'm going to reserve that for the next week in the second point, because there again he's going to speak in depth about unequally yoked, especially to do with marriage. And I'm going to bring this back there. Some of it may not connect because it's from here, but I'm going to bring it there because if I get into it now, I'll be going on for over an hour. So, I want to leave it right now in short. Unequally yoked could be any relationship, not only marriage, listen to me carefully. It could be your parents, it could be your children, it could be your friends, anyone who changes. It could be your wife or anyone who changes or your girlfriend or anyone who changes or helps you mold your decision making your thought process, your whole spiritual life to anyone who comes in the way of your decision making and your love for Christ Jesus and your following of Christ Jesus. Now, that is basically someone whom you are unequally yoked with. I'll get, like I said, next week in depth with it. I want us to remember something as we get into out of this. I want us to remember that Satan is a prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? If we who are in Christ are children of God, then who are the sons of disobedience? Everyone who is not saved, everyone who is outside. It could be your unbelieving spouse, your parents, your unbelieving children, your unbelieving friends your unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever they are, all of them who are not in Christ, who are outside, could, are, not could, sorry, are these who are under, are sons of disobedience, who are under the power of the prince of the air. You might be saying, this is too much. Where are you getting this from? Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Uh, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Sister May read this out this morning for us. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is that spirit? The Holy Spirit? The evil spirit. Satan at work now in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. That means we were once those sons of disobedience. The some of our brothers that we've been doing afficions like really slowly and we kind of dived into this and we saw what it meant. And then look further, verse 3, and I'm going to come back again next week into this. Among whom we all once lived. And how did we live? With the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Our passions and desires 
or of the world. That's how we live. That's how sons of disobedience live. That is how people who are not in Christ live. I go back to what I said. When people mold your decision making, your living, your choices, everything is because that's what they live for, the passion of the flesh. And therefore, what should we do then? What is the application here? What are we to do then? The same thing as you hear the word of God tell us. We need to find ways of wisdom, how to break out from them. As soon as the people heard the law, Nehemiah, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. As soon as we hear, as we've heard the word of the Lord, we are to rightfully separate. Now I'm saying there's wisdom in this, and so again I'm going to touch deeply next week into it. But there's wisdom in how we do it, but we are to separate from those who are not of Christ Jesus. In whatever way this unequally yoked is. For if we do not separate, it is going to drive us against Christ and back into sin from where we first came from. So we would have like a, like, we would look like children of God and then we would have gone away again into sin, dead before God. Apart from this, there were other issues that were plaguing the nation of Israel. Now I'll come to that next week. We come to the second point, recognizing ungodly leadership. We see that from verses 4 to verses 14. Recognizing ungodly leadership, verses 4 to verses 14. We see that Elisha the priest was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. Elisha was a high priest during that time and we see that in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. Elisha was related to Tobiah. You all remember that name, Tobiah? He was one of the three who was displeased when they came and started building the nation of Israel. He's one of them who opposed Nehemiah and opposed the nation of Israel. He despised Israel, he mocked them, he hired false prophets to prophesy against Nehemiah, he tried to make them afraid by telling them lies, and then he also raised up people to send in false report to the king, and he tried in every way to stop them to build the walls and the nation of Israel. All because there were people, remember before when we read from this, there were people in the nation of Israel who were siding him. And so Tobiah was related to Elisha, first by marriage and then by friendship. So Elisha, the high priest, his grandson, uh, sorry, his uh, granddaughter was married to Sanabal. And Sanabal was related to Tobiah. That's how they were related. They were basically far off related but yet they were related. And this brought honor and pride to Elisheb, who is the high priest, rather than bringing him disgrace. Why disgrace? Because the word of God told him that he is not to marry unbelievers, that it profanes. And he is, remember, part of the Levites, the priesthood. Even more he should not marry. Because that's for the pace 
he sets for anyone. Imagine I'm not married, so imagine tomorrow if I get married to an unbeliever. That disqualifies me from being a pastor. You all should make sure that I would step away then from here as a pastor in order to preserve the church. That's something very similar, but he had his granddaughter married. Now again, uh, we come from an Eastern culture where we understand what when parents tell you do this, you go and do it. Now think about that, multiply it into ten, take it back thousands of generations, at, at least thousand years back, and then think of it. Oh, I'm sorry, not thousand, more than two thousand years back. And then think of it. The grandfather would, if he's living, would have the call to say, I think when I hear some of the stories from my parents, uh, my the grandmother in the house, one of the grandmothers, she knew when she said something, that is what happened. The older person in the house, that's how patriarchal societies work. The older person in the house made the call for everyone and what they would have to do. There's good ways to do it. Patriarchy is not wrong. It's not unbiblical, but the world has abused it. I don't want to get into all of that right now. But here, you see that He's been the decision maker for his granddaughter to marry this unbelieving person. And he is proud about it. Where do we see that they are not to marry Leviticus 21 verse 14 to 15? A widow or divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, they shall not marry. But he shall take his wife, a virgin of his own people, that they may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Again, you see here, the reason for separation is not ethnicity. Many people at times make ethnicity a big thing. Ethnicity is nothing. The reason for separation here is religion, not ethnicity. So Elisha, Elisha not only for forsaking God's law and marrying his grand granddaughter to an unbeliever. But further, what had he done? He prepared for Tobiah a larger chamber where they previously used to put grain in order for the Levites to get food. And he emptied that place and he uh, removed all of the frankincense and the tithes and the grain offerings and everything that would come for the Levites that were contributed for the priests. He made empty that place and made that a place where now Tobiah could live in. When is this happening? When this one year, when Nehemiah has gone back. Now, not even a year, Nehemiah has gone and everything is starting to work differently. <coughs> As a high priest, Elisheb should have taught the people the law and set a good example before them. Rather, he lived contrary to the law. He was using the law for his own entertainment, for his own selfish gain. As an overseer of the chambers of the temple, he had to make sure that the Levites got their food, but he was not doing that. He was using it again for his own selfish gain. Like bringing an idol into the temple, Elishab had brought a pagan into the temple of the Holy God. Do you see the connection again with Corinthians? Bible study is hard work. And so for you to see connections, it has to, you have to sit, study the text, 
If you just read it and go away, you will not remember anything that's happening in the text. Nehemiah had left the city for after 12 years to return to King Artaxerxes. He originally arrived in 444 BC, then after 12 years he left in 432 BC for about a year and he returned again to the city in 431 BC. And this is when he comes and sees. Uh, if you want to know this timing that I got, uh, and you've gone for 12 years, Nehemiah 514 will help us see that, but I'm not going to go into the text. I think it's up there, but we won't go to it. You see, Satan often works this way. This is not just the old covenant, even in the new covenant. When the servants are asleep, when the leader is absent, when things are silent, he comes in and he sows tears. Matthew chapter 13 verse 25. But while men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weed among the wheat and went away. The parable of the sower. When Noah, Moses, went up to the mountain to bring the Ten Commandments, the Israelites made for them what? A calf that they may worship it and call it God. People often, when there is no leaders or when people, when the leaders are weakest or when the church is the weakest, that is when Satan attacks. You must remember that he is always on watch. He's always prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What was Nehemiah's reaction when he comes back? You see that in verse 8 and 9. I was very angry. Then I gave orders and I threw out all the household furniture of Turbiah out of the chambers. Then I gave orders that they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessel of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. You see, does this remind you of something else in the New Testament? Jesus, Jesus clearing the temple. And you have Nehemiah doing it as well over here. Godly anger leads to holiness. It is not something that is dwelt upon us. So you can't say godly anger and continuously keep it in your heart without doing anything. Godly anger leads to holiness, which means it rightfully deals with hating of sin and anything that has to do with ending sin. So it works fast at once swiftly. Church, my prayer is that we have such godly anger towards sin in our own lives. Now we're looking at Nehemiah and everything else that's happening there, but I hope that we look to our own hearts and have such godly anger and hatred towards sin in our own lives. If we look at our own heart, we could see sin in our own hearts. Just like Elishim had sin, we too could have sin. Do we look at our sins with such godly anger, like that Nehemiah had, with such dedication? When we look at sin so deeply and with godly anger in our lives, we will hate sin done within the local church or within the house of God as well. And we must hate sin when it is done in the house of God, when it's done in the houses of the people who are living, when people live unholy lives before us, we must hate it. But first, we must begin with hating sin in our own hearts and in our own lives. A good question to ask ourselves is, when was the last time we had such hatred or anger towards sin? 
when was the last time we had such hatred or anger towards sin? If you can think and you can't think of a time, then church, I would ask you to pray and ask God to help you hate sin in your own lives. That you may love his word and hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. And as I'm saying this for you all, this goes out for me as well. As I'm writing this sermon portion, I'm reaching out this to my own heart. I'm stopping and I'm praying this upon my own heart. Because I understand that I need godly anger to hate sin in my own life as well. Praise God that today we have Jesus Christ, our prophet, our great high priest, our king, our advocate. You know why? Because he's not like Nehemiah or not like Moses who takes a break and has to go somewhere else. He is always there. And when he has sealed you with his eternal blood, Satan cannot snatch you away from his hand. But you are protected when you are under his care. So though you may fall, Christian, temporarily, it's a temporal falling. But you may repent and run back to him, the fountain of living life and hope for us. And I hope that we would look to him, our chief apostle, our king, our high priest, and our prophet. And that in him, know that our salvation is secure. And so as a result of all of this, Tobiah taking over the chambers and the portion was not, because he took over that port, chambers, the portion that was supposed to be given to the Levites were not given. Maybe it could be that he started taking all of that for himself. The text says that they were not given, but it doesn't, doesn't say whether the people gave or didn't give. So it could be that the people initially were giving and then this fellow was taking it all for himself, this pagan guy who was in the temple, taking it all for himself. And then what, what did that cause? The Levites and the singers fled everyone to his field. The work is neglected because the workmen are neglected. So it was long before the salaries of the Levites or the things that were to be given to the Levites were not given and so the Levites left and went back to their fields because they had to provide for themselves and they had to provide for their children as well. And so they had to go back. So when Nehemiah comes, he first lays the faults on the officials and he asks them, why is the house of God forsaken? That's why I took the verse 11, main title. And you see the relation of it? What is forsaking the house of God you're connected to? Giving to God. Giving for his kingdom. Giving to the work of the temple. Giving to the priests. Giving to the Levites. Forsaking that is forsaking the house of God. Who's saying this? Not me. The word of God is saying this. He's basically come back and he's asking, why are the Levites starved? Why have you not taken notice of it? Why are you violating God's command? Deuteronomy 12 verse 19. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as he lives in your land. Deuteronomy 14 verse 27. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your town, for he has no portions or inheritance with you. The Levites had no land for themselves. There was no place they could call toil and call the place their home. 
They are dedicated all their life for the service of the people of the nation of Israel. Therefore, the nation of Israel had to take care of the Levites. And when they rejected taking care of the Levites, the Levites had no other obligation but to go and provide for their own children and their wives and their families. Remember, these are not single men, they are married people who have children. And so they had to go back and to provide. And therefore, they went back and started providing for themselves. <coughs> and when Nehemiah comes back, what does he do? He obligated the people to bring their tithes. He told the Levites, come back, start working, even if it means you're not paid to begin with. And so the Levites come back and they listen to Nehemiah. And they're here, you have a true leader of God who's come back because he led it with his own standard. Remember, I just, uh, we, uh, we skipped that verse, but for 12, this 12 years that Nehemiah was there, he didn't take a single pie of what was set apart for him, for the government. Because it was a poor nation that was being built up. We saw this even before. And so therefore he calls them, he says, now come back. And so they know of a leader who himself sacrificially served them. And they said, well, we will go serve them sacrificially because he said that for us already. So they went back and they served. And then I'm sure then because of that, the nation of Israel saw they were obligated to come back and give the tithes. And so they came back and they started providing again to the nation, uh, to uh, the Levites. The people cheerfully brought back and provided to the storehouses that which was to be given to the Levites. What was the issue here? We had leaders who had been selected in the, in the temple who were not supposed to be leaders, who lived selfishly for themselves. This is why we often say that leaders who lead the church are appointed for their already functioning role. It's not like a job profile when you apply, then I will start working for your company. This is different. In the church, people are already functioning in that church role. And people recognize that functioning, not just head knowledge, but functioning in that role and serving in that role and therefore they appoint them. This is where the New Testament talk of the, talks about deacons, for example. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they approve themselves blameless. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in faith, that is in Christ Jesus. We can also see this in Acts when the proto-deacons are selected. They were already functioning in that role. And the people knew that these were people, so that's why they called them out, who were already functioning in that role. Therefore, as a church, when we work together to choose deacons, to choose further elders, we need to find people who are already functioning in that role, who are already serving in that role. We test them, we make sure that they're already doing it, and then we select them for that role. But here in this text you can see that there's a clear difference between Nehemiah and Elisha. Nehemiah was there for 12 years and did not even take one share which belonged to him. This is something that he had to take. That was his right, yet he didn't take it. And here you have Elisha who came there not even for a year and he grabbed the opportunity in one year to think, turn things upside down for his own favor. 
Godly leaders serve the people even at their own expense. Godly leaders do not seek their own desires first. Godly leaders are willing to lay down their lives for the people. This does not mean they are yes men, just because I said they are willing to lay down the life of the people. It means they love the word of God and they will not move to please people against the word of God. Even if it means their own lives or even if they mean up to, they have to maybe leave. You know, in church history, Jonathan Edwards had been uh, excommunicated by the whole church because he said that only believers will partake in the bread and the wine. And the church said no unbelievers also can participate. And so therefore they excommunicated Jonathan Edwards from the church. Godly leaders will stand on the truth of God's word, even if it means the church kicks him out. The only benefit that they seek is that for God and truly according to the word of God. They are faithful to love God and to love his people and to live for him alone. This can be clearly seen in the life of Nehemiah. This is why I am pulling a lot of this from out. Godly leaders reflect Christ to the church. <clears throat> However, false leaders like Elishab are wolves in sheep's clothing. They only seek their own benefit. They never want to sacrifice. They are waiting for a moment to recapture things for their own benefits. They use people for their own benefits. They are selfish, they are unkind, they hate God's word. They bend it to suit their own passion. They rob the people of God, they rob God. They are cancer in the church. Such leaders should be excommunicated from the church. In 1 Timothy 5 verses 19, so it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except in the evidence of two or three witnesses. Matthew chapter 18 should be practiced and brought up as a church together. If a godly leader is, if a leader is living ungodly and he needs to be excommunicated, this does not mean that uh, this means unrepentant sin, the same way we are looking at other excommunication. <laughs> but this is not only the leadership that has forgotten the law, it's also the nation of Israel who has forgotten the law. law. They renewed the covenant last a year back and within a year they have forgotten it. In last la week's passage in chapter 12 towards the end, what did the people do? They went to provide for the Levites and by now they have forgotten that they need to provide for the Levites. Today we have, as Christians, can be like that in the church as well. We can be just there and while things are going chaotically there, like what's happened here? Elishab has come, he has made sure that the money that's going for the Levites is going somewhere else and he has put in, uh, so the Levites are ran away and the people don't really care, they're just there for over one whole year. Can you imagine a church like that? People are coming in, people are going, no one is bothered. Where is this brother not come? No one cares. A brother has come to church for five, six Sundays and suddenly disappeared. No one cares. The church is often like that even today. In a kind of deadness. That is what's with the people of Israel here. A man has come into the church, brought into membership, and then suddenly disappeared. No one knows where he goes. Oh, the pastor knows where he is, so that is fine. 
the whole church needs to know where the person is. It is the whole church is prerogative in the new covenant, just like the whole nation of Israel should know what was happening in the temple. Why did the Levites leave and go? I'm asking us, do you often notice brothers and sisters who miss Sundays or who have not come for long? Have you followed up? Have you asked them why? Where have you gone? Have you tried to ask the elders where they are? Have you prayed for these brothers and sisters? The one and other commands in the New Testament hold us to this. In the command from God to Christians in the church, according to the New Testament, is not only for the one and other commands, are not only for the leaders in the church, it's for everyone. And neglecting this is neglecting the worship of God. Now that's the indirect connection that I just made. The direct connection is when we do not offer to God what is to be offered to God in our tithes, our offerings, our giving to the Lord in worship, even our own lives, then we are neglecting the household of God. Just like the Levites neglected, or just like the uh, Israelites neglected, just like the officials neglected. Many of us are neglecting as well. Some of us might look at giving as a separate event in church. Giving is not in a separate event in church. You see that we do announcements before we start the worship. But we don't do offering before the announcement. Why? Because offering is very much part of worship. Your offering here on Sunday morning, whether it's money or everything, all of it is actually offering, is all very part of worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth and he's speaking to them about when they are to gather money. And he says, On the first day of the every week, first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and store it up as he, pro as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first day of the week. Now next week we're going to look about one other issue that is the Sabbath. The first week of the day of the week is the Christian Sabbath over here when they're all gathering over here. It is not the new covenant, old covenant Sabbath, it's the new covenant Sabbath. And so they gather the money during worship when they come over here. Just like there's offering in the old covenant, in the new covenant there's offering as well. The offering there was different, over here it's different. The reason why they gave there is different. The reason why we give here is different. Why did they give in the Old Covenant? They gave and they saw that we were supposed to die like this animal, but then God now has, in the future, going to come and save us through someone who will die on our behalf. But offering in the New Covenant is also tied to the cross, but differently. We look back to the cross and we look to Christ who has paid the price in full, and we say, Lord, all that you give to my give to me are yours, and we give you this back again today with all our hearts. <clears throat> you know, when I was in uh, church growing up, for a long time I had to I was set aside to count tithes or uh, an offerings, and the most soil notes come over there in the church, and. One thing my pastor taught me, which I uh, spoke to some weeks back to some of the brothers here as well, 
is that if you find a soil node which is torn, broken, sellotaped, which is not usable, replace that with a note from your pocket. And that's what I did. I was very young at that time and I obeyed the leader who told me to do that. And I think godly advices and godly direction at that young age is helpful such as this to live basically what he was teaching me was to live sacrificially. And that was his thing with many people and we will see them do that as well. So what does all this boil down to then here? In 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 to 18, this is what it says. How does that apply to the new covenant directly? Elders who lead effectively are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at the preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worth of his wages. What is Paul doing? He's saying, when someone, just like you, you receive salary at his workplace in the church, when the one who is doing the preaching, the elder, who leads effectively, effectively is worthy of double honor. And he's quoting for his proof text from Deuteronomy 25.4 and Deuteronomy 24.15. And he joins both these words together. And he says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out of the grain. And then he brings out Deuteronomy 24.15. And he says the worker deserves his wages. In other words, just like an ox is, when an ox is treading out the grain, it deserves something. You, therefore, as humans, he's explaining this in Corinthians. Therefore, a human leader also deserves to be given, prayed, helped, received. And so I think as a church that we should look at what this means for us as a church as well. And Nehemiah, in the end, over here, asks and prays to God. He says, remember the service and not wipe away this good deeds as a servant, as a service to the house of God. Nehemiah is not speaking here out of pride or boasting. He's not doing that. That's not what he's trying to do. It may sound like boasting. It may sound like prideful words, but that's not what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is much less depending upon his own righteousness. What he's saying is, Lord, I'm a debtor to you. In my humble plea, I appeal to you, remember me on that day. He's basically not saying, see Lord, I've done all of this because I've done this, be good to me. But he's either appealing to God, say, Lord, remember me for all the good that I've done to the household of God. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not just as so as to overlook your work and to love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Deeds done for the house of God, for the advancement of the gospel, for the local church, are good deeds. God will certainly remember them. There are no financial benefits here of that here on earth. But deeds done for the household of God will receive eternal dwelling, eternal blessings that we can never count, that we can never imagine. I pray that we will live for the sake of the gospel. Now, you might not be working full-time in the church. You might be wondering, well, then how am I to help? How am I to partake? Well, we are all members. We are all house, a part of the household of God. We are all Christians. We all have the gospel. How do you use the gospel for the glory of God? How do you live out your Christian life for the glory of God.
All of that will help you in order for your worship to God. At the end, there is no financial reward. No one is going to pay you. And even in this, you can see how earthly we are being influenced. We promote, we would dedicate and go sacrificially all our lives. And we will go completely out of the way for pagan people because they give us money. But for the house of God, we will say, I'm sorry, pastor, I'm busy. Oh, I'm sorry, church, I can't come this because I have something else to do. Sacrifices are quickly made for where their money comes. And many people don't like this when I'm saying this. But this is truth from scripture. If you have another answer to this, come to me from another scripture which tells you otherwise. But this is scripture. And what scripture clearly shows us is that those who love money will follow money. And so we need to see where our hearts are aligned, whether to Christ or to the world. Let us, let us not be caught like the leaders in the nation of Israel. Where, Paul, where Nehemiah comes back and says, you have neglected the household of God. For those who are in Christ Jesus, this is the good news. That we can look to Christ and it is his perfect keeping of the law that we are accepted before <coughs> him. Not our devotion, not our worship, not our neglecting or keeping of the house, not our living of unequally yoked lives, not all of that. We might have done all that in the past, but if we repent and if we forgive, like John says, he is faithful to forgive. And true Christians do repent. They acknowledge their sin. They look into their own heart. They have godly hunger, hatred upon their own sins in their own hearts. However, if we foolishly, like Elisha, reject it, and selfishly look at our own interests. When the end comes, we will be destroyed eternally under the wrath of God. But let us prepare our hearts before we break bread. And let us just meditate what we just heard from God's word. 